Okay, first of all, if you came uh, with your motorcycle, although I didn't see any out there, uh, we are not going to the rib crib today, so we don't get soaking wet. We are going to stay in town, and we're going to go to Fiesta after church, and, uh, and hopefully Nasser will come with us. So if you uh, want to go to lunch with us, please come. Maybe we could pack the whole place out. We'd just be whole, real life, everybody. That would be really cool. So uh, after church, if we get the trailer packed up, we're going to head to Fiesta and, uh, and have lunch. So please join us. Okay? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I told Nasser I wanted to take him to the best Mexican restaurant in El Dorado. Maybe. We'll see. Okay, whatever. I like, okay. So, so thanks for being here this morning. I'm super excited uh, to hear what Nasser has to bring to us today. Um, Nasser is from Saudi Arabia. Correct. Right? Did I say that right? Yeah. Okay. Good. I don't know. So, anyway. From there, um, and has been here for a while, has an incredible story about coming to, to Christ, and, and maybe you'll get to hear that. Uh, and not today. Not today, because we're going to talk about Jesus That's today, right. not Nasser. That's right. uh, but maybe someday you'll get to hear that, uh, that story, and, and maybe um, in a couple weeks, because uh, he's going to come back, right? Yeah. In a couple weeks. And uh, preach for us again. Um, but uh, really excited to, to, um, to have him, and just to, he has just this captivating way of speaking, and he's going to tie the whole Bible together today as we kick off our Christ Alone series, and we're going to see how the whole Bible is really about Jesus. A lot of times we think of it as two books, right? Mm-hmm. Bill talked about that in the community talk, um, but really it's one continuous narrative, and yeah. you're going to see that clearly uh, through Nasser's, uh, uh, what he's going to share this morning. So let me pray for Please. you and yes. for us, and uh, I'll turn it over. God, I just I thank you for, um, for the email that led me to Nasser and uh, getting to, to watch him online and, and then getting to meet and talk to him and, and uh, I see his heart a little bit. I, I pray today, I know that you have been um, working in his life and speaking. He's been doing a lot of things and, and I know you've been prepping him for this morning and uh, God, I know that you've been prepping us as well. And so would we have eyes to, to see and ears to hear uh, what you're going to say uh, through our brother Nasser and, mm-hmm. and um God, I'm just excited to see you have an incredible plan that, that really starts and ends with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And uh, so would you help us to see that today? And would you speak through him uh, and help us to hear? In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. Okay. Good morning. How are you guys doing this morning? Did you avoid getting wet? I tried my best. So, yeah, my name is Nasr al-Ghattani, and... Uh, few things that may not be immediately obvious. So I'm a husband of 25 years, um, father to two wonderful daughters or older daughters um, out of the house and married. We have one granddaughter who's about to turn two years old in a couple months. So I'm very excited watching her grow up. So uh, I've known Jesus for about 23 years now. Um, Before that, I was a radical jihadist Muslim guy running around causing trouble. And then... uh, Jesus uh, intercepted me and won my heart and my allegiance, and I've been following him ever since. But because I grew up as a Muslim, I, when I first approached the Bible, and you know, I, ha- I travel a lot, so I have a very thin Bible. Like it has like no notes in it, no references, nothing. It's like just the Bible. 
Um, and I like it because it's super compact. But it's really a really thick book, right? Most of you, if you have Bibles at home, probably twice as thick as this. And, and I didn't know how to read it. Like, I didn't even know what it was. And, and I came from a, a culture and a, and a religion where we had a holy book, but it wasn't anything like this book. And, and I was familiar with other groups and other religious books, and there were a lot of rules and things and, and maybe, you know, parables and some wisdom. And well, I had a lot of questions when I started following Jesus, and I didn't know how to read it. And one day the Holy Spirit just spoke to me and said, why don't you just pick it up and try and stop making excuses. And uh, so, you know, as I first opened it, and I didn't know where to begin, so I started at the first page. And I don't know if you've ever, you know, just looked at it like that, and you open up the first page, and the first words are, in the beginning. And it says, God created the heavens and the earth. And when I thought that, I was like, that's really wild. That's not at all how I expected this book. I thought it would be like, thou shalt, which should be like the first you know, sentence. But it says, in the beginning. And I'm like, that almost sounds like the beginning of a story, right? Like, have any of you familiar with Star Wars, right? A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, right? It's like the beginning of a story. I'm like, but this is, can't be a story, right? That's not how I've always heard people talk about the Bible. And um, if you look at the last page of the Bible... Because I, you know, was really curious. Is this, is this really a thing? Maybe it starts as a story, and then maybe it becomes something else. But if you look at the last page of the Bible, and like the last kind of, it's it's not the last uh, verse of the Bible, but kind of up above that, just a little bit, um, sort of the last paragraph of narrative in the Bible, last part of the story. Um, and this is uh, Revelation 22, verse five. It says, "And and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light." and they will reign forever and ever. And I'm like, that sounds like the ending of some incredible story. And so all of this, somehow, in the mind of the many people that God used to bring this marvelous book to us, they, as they contributed the parts that God led them to contribute, they were adding and, and expanding this one single unified story. And you know, when we uh, look at like kinds of like, so if it's a, if it's a book, if it's a, a story book, and I hate to use that term because it almost seems like it's a fairy tale, but it's not. This is the truest thing ever written. But when we look at this as, as, as a book, as a, as a book that's telling a story, then the question becomes, what kind of story is it telling? What kind of a book is this? And, uh, you know, there's lots of different kinds of books, right? There's lots of different kinds of stories. And, and the Bible fits in this very specific genre of uh, just sprawling, epic narrative. And I think the closest that, that anybody, you know, here in the West ever comes to, to, to touching something like that is like something like The Lord of the Rings. Like, how many of you remember when those Lord of the Rings movies came out? You know, it was a few years ago, but like, I, I own like the director's cuts, and so it's like, I forget, five or six hours long, like to watch all three of those books. But if you've ever had to read the actual books that the movies are, are based off of, like, it's, it's one big story, right? It's all about this, this ring, and, and it's all evil and trying to destroy it. And in the midst of that, there's all these little stories about individual people and how they're interacting with this plot of, you know, who's going to win, the light or the darkness. And then if you're, 
if you have read, even if you've read just like the, the sort of the prologue to the story, which is The Hobbit, like you'll come across a story and then it will suddenly stop and then everybody's like singing a song and it'll be like the whole lyrics of the song or there'll be like some poetry and all of that and it seems like well, that's kind of a weird way to write a story. But what, what Tolkien was doing is he was copying this literary style that the Bible and a lot of ancient writings use where they, they, they pull in poetry and music and, and sort of, uh, you know, meditation, uh, philosophizing about our existence and who God is and who we are and what are we here for, and then bringing it in, uh, tying it all together in this actual, like, coherent story. It's, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. And uh, if, if this is, is telling a story, then, then what, what is the story? And, and this is, I think, what makes it really difficult when we approach the Bible and, and not knowing what the big picture story is, is we can read these little stories and they just seem weird, right? I mean, to be honest, like some of them, such stuff in like the Old Testament, it's just these weird stories about people that we can't relate to and why are they doing this stuff? And then, you know, if you've ever, how many of you have tried to do like a read the Bible in one year plan? Like a few, a few brave souls tried that. And, and how many of you got to like Leviticus and then you were like, I'm done, <laughs> right? Starts talking about people's bodily fluids and weird stuff with killing animals. And, you're like, and, and if you were like really toughed it out, you, maybe you made it to Deuteronomy and then you're like, nah, we're do, going over it again? No, we're done, we're done. Like, I don't know this. I just want to stay in the New Testament. Give me Jesus. And like, I don't understand this, this other, other stuff that's in there. But if you know what the big picture story is, it actually helps to put these little stories in context and to make sense of it. And so what I'm trying to do this morning, in, in a very short amount of time, we'll see how this works, is take a talk that I give that's about 16 hours long and compress it down, right, to about, you know, 30-ish minutes. We'll see how that goes. Um, but to give you some tools as you're reading the Bible, as you're hearing the word preached you know, from this platform and when you're home with your families or by yourself with this book, this amazing, most miraculous book on the planet, to help you make sense of what you're reading and how these little stories, these poems, these songs, these meditations are all contributing to this single unified story that is actually pointing us to a person, Jesus Christ. So let's see, let's see how this goes. Okay, so where are we? All right, yeah, so let's go on. Um, so the Bible, so yeah, next slide. There we go. Okay, so let's go to the beginning. Because if we're going to, what I find where people kind of go off the rails a bit in understanding like and seeing the big picture story is that we don't really understand the beginning quite right. We don't have a good grasp of that. And so because of that, we don't quite get the ending right. And so then how are we ever supposed to connect the two in anything that makes sense? So, so let's look just for a few minutes carefully at some uh, details about the beginning of the story. Okay, so if you're reading Genesis 1, you, you see this uh, creator God who is bringing like everything that we know and experience in our daily lives into being. What's up, in the, what's up there, what's down here, the things crawling around, the things growing, all of that, the, the things that we see way, way far away in the night sky and in the day and all of those things. He's bringing it all into being and he's bringing it into being through his, his word. He's speaking things into being. And as he's going along, um, he's constantly uh, 
sort of critiquing what he's doing so far. And every time, as, as every stage, every stage of creation, he's saying, this is good. This is good. This is good. And so the time he gets to the very end, he's like, this is very good. And when he gets to that, he said it seven times. How good. So right off the bat, the Bible's telling us a story about a world that is absolutely, thoroughly, and completely good. And if you're thinking, well, when I read my newspaper, when I look outside you know, my window, that's not quite what I'm experiencing. That's okay. We're going to get to that part and why that's that way. But to start with, and this is super important to understand, the world is good. The world that God made is good. Okay. So towards the, the end of this uh, creation story, um, the, the final thing that he makes, and he makes a big deal about it, is, is he makes us. And it's such a big deal that when uh, he makes us, um, in that part of the story, actually, if, if you, depending on your Bible translation, it probably like sets off like Genesis 127, like indented or something, and that's supposed to be your clue. I don't know if anyone ever told you this. Someone, I had to go and find this out. That means it's a poem. Like in the original Hebrew, it's like, it's poetry. And so he actually stops and gives a short little uh, three-sentence poem. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And it's, it's such a marvelous thing that has to, he can't just state it. He has to state it and then say it again as poetry. It's a work of art. It's beauty, right? But, but what does that mean? What does that mean he created man in his own image? It's, it's a crazy thing um, because when you think of like the various people groups that have lived on the earth in thousands and thousands of years, and, and many people like had some understanding of the supernatural or, or God or gods or whatever, and, and many times people would build houses for these gods called temples, and they would put in the house of God, of their God, um, some kind of statue or idol, something that, that represented that being, and that's an image in the likeness of their God. So they understood, like if you went to the, a temple in Greece and there's this big statue in the temple of Zeus, of Zeus himself, and it's all really cool, and maybe he's a thunderbolt in his hand and all that. They understand the statue's not Zeus, but it sure looks like him. And, and how it's been designed and fashioned and shaped rep, is made to represent him. And you, by looking at that statue you can see characteristics and qualities and, and learn a little bit of what kind of guy Zeus was. The fact that he's holding a lightning bolt tells you something about him, right? Without anybody saying anything, just looking at it can tell you things about the God that that image represents. And so then the Bible says, hey, guess what? When God made humanity, he was making an image of himself. If you ever wonder why one of the Ten Commandments God said is, you know, don't make any images of me, it's because he's already done that. He's already done that when he made you. He made you to be something that represents him. Mind-blowing. What? What? And, and, it, and in ancient times when this was written, this wasn't like new language. Like Nobody ever thought of, of people being images of, of a god or gods. They had that kind of language, but it was only ever used of kings. So you could say like ancient Babylon or ancient Egypt, the, the king of those those places, they would call themselves, I'm the image of God, and so I get to rule, and you guys are not, so that's why I'm king and you're not, and they would use that kind of language, and then the Bible comes along and says, uh-uh, no, actually, all of humanity are made in God's image, and if you're an ancient person, you would think, oh, does that mean that all of humanity were all kings? 
We're all meant to rule. Well, guess what? You keep reading the Bible. The very next verse is, and he makes them, he blesses them. Not just to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, but have dominion over it to rule. And so it's like, yeah, it's really saying that. That we were made to be co-rulers under God. Like, that's a crazy thing. Okay. And then it goes on to say that, you know, we have this, this creation account in, in Genesis 2 uh, of, of the first man, of Adam. And then we see how, how woman comes on the stage, and, and it's a really crazy story because, again, in ancient Middle Eastern places like where the Bible sprouted up, like women were often seen as, as lesser human, less than human, various things, oppressed in, in all kinds of ways. And then this book comes along and says, guess what? When God made the first man, he was actually incomplete. And it wasn't until he created woman out of him, so he's the same, same DNA, but, but created to complement and complete him. And so the idea was that, that man and woman together represent a, a unique and intimate unity, which in itself points back to God. Because remember that little poem said, it wasn't just God created man in his homage, male and female, he created them. And so something about this one creator God, something about him and his nature can't be fully represented or expressed in one single human man by himself. He has another one with him who is like him but distinct from him, and together they are one humanity. Like You see where this is going? Like It's crazy stuff, and we're just like on page two of the Bible. If only we had more time. So... So, okay, what, what, are, what are some takeaways from this? So, we have a, a world that's really good. We have humanity that are made to represent um, and rule over creation under God, reflecting his good character and his nature into the world and reflecting back from creation the worship and the praise of all the earth back to God. Beautiful, wonderful story. Like, it's a great story. You're like, yeah, this is awesome. Why aren't we living in this world? And then you get to page three, and there's a talking snake, and you're like, what in the world? Is this a fairy tale, or is this real life? And so we're not going to talk about the snake, other than, clearly, uh, we, I don't live in a world with talking snakes. There's something supernatural about this creature that comes in and comes alongside the man and the woman and, and tempts them, entices them to do the one thing that they were asked by God not to do. So, and it's, it's this tree of good and evil, and it's kind of like how we even understand that, whatever. But let's just put it real simple, okay? So far on this story, there's one being who clearly knows what is good because he's been calling things good seven times over, and that's God. And so the man and the woman are given the, the, the choice. You can continue to live in relationship with me and, and discover together what is good and what is not from me by submitting and being in relationship with me, or you can seize for yourself the ability to decide for yourself what's good and what's not. But the day that you do that, you cut yourself off from me. You die because you cut yourself off from the one who is life. And that's what that snake enticed and tempted them to do, and we have this fall, and then there's this, you know, 
these, uh, this big long poem that's full of, you know, the snake gets cursed and, you know, the things go, aren't looking good for the man and the woman. And instantly the fallout are all these broken relationships almost right off the bat. Right off the bat you see the man and the woman pointing fingers at each other. Um, God tells them that, you know, things aren't going to be smooth sailing anymore in marriage. And, you know, right after at the end of that, like Genesis 3.17, you know, the man gives the woman a name. <laughs> You know, he has to name her now because he's taking authority over her because she obviously needs to be put under control because she's just running wild, right? And he gives her a name, you know, in English it's Eve, but in, in the Hebrew it basically means life um, because she's going to be the mother of all living. So basically he says, you're gonna, your name's Baby Maker because that's all you're good for now. I'm not going to listen to you anymore. Like, it's, it's, it's sad. It's tragic. And yet it explains so much about what's so broken in this world, right? And then we see the very next generation in the next chapter, the, the, the first two sons that they have, you know, one murders the other because he too is, is, is listening to another voice, not the voice of God, but another voice that, that's encouraging and enticing him to destroy what is good and, and, and promote what's not. And then it, you have a whole, like the next two chapters of, of Genesis, it just gets worse and worse and worse and the first human city is built and it's a city of blood and, and you, know, you get a few generations in and you literally have a guy who's waltzing through the streets singing a song about how he likes to kill people. Like, it's just awful, awful, awful. And, and by the time we get to the story of Noah, it's, it's really clear that not only is there now a conflict in this story between, you know, man and wife and, and men and other men and, you know, people against each other, but there's also a, a huge conflict going on inside of individual people. They have hearts that are now, instead of being full of, of the life that they receive from God, and, and walking and following his wisdom, now they're hearts that are just totally overflowing with evil all the time and, and bringing destruction and violence and bloodshed over everything. And God has to respond to this, right? Because what did God say about this world? It's good. He loves this world. And he, mankind is destroying it. And so when you read the flood story, if you read it in parallel with Genesis chapter 1, it becomes really clear suddenly, oh wow, this is an uncreation story. He's actually going through all the steps that he made in Genesis 1, but in reverse. So where waters were divided and pulled apart before so that humans could have a nice dry place to live, now everything's coming crashing back together. It's like God is, is just undoing everything, but he spares this one family. This one family gets spared. Why? Because the, the father figure of this family was, was like the only person on the planet who was still listening to the voice of God and trying to walk by it. And so he rescues them, and the waters recede, and we have this really, really crazy thing that doesn't make any sense unless you're paying attention to what the big picture story is. So in, in Genesis 8, the flood has receded, Noah and his family, they get out of the boat, and they're checking things out, releasing the animals, all of that stuff. And Noah goes and makes a sacrifice. He makes an offering to God. You know, because he realizes humanity's been given a second chance to get this thing right. And so he's, he's doing that. He's making this offering. And so right at the end of Genesis uh, chapter 8, um, we'll start verse 21. It says, And when the, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil 
from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. So I said that kind of fast. Let me say it again real slow. God's saying, okay, clearly mankind is irredeemably broken, wicked. And so what I'm not going to do is destroy humans. Wait, what? Because that's not what I would do <laughs> in that situation. I'm like, all right, just wipe them all out. And, and, or, and what we see right off this in the story, uh, you know, Noah himself, like the first thing he does, you know, once his, they settle down, is he plants a, a vineyard. Like he's it's like, oh, we're back in the garden. Oh, it's going to be good. And then he immediately gets drunk. And a horrible thing happens with one of his sons. Like it's gross. And, and you're like, ah, nothing's changed. Even the humans that God could find on the planet are totally messed up. They can't get it right. And God's response is, yeah, I know. And because of that, I'm not going to wipe out humanity. The only reason that makes sense is if this is a story where God is trying to restore what was good and right and pure in the beginning, he's going to bring that back. And in the beginning, we had a good world that God loves and we had humanity that perfectly image and represent God in this creation that he's made, co-ruling with him and together as one humanity. And so for any kind of good ending to the story, the ending has to look like that. And so the ending of the book, of this book, has to end in some fashion with humans ruling together in perfect unity under God's authority, being kings and queens over the earth that is good and, and perfect. That's how it has to end. And if you read the end of Revelation, that is how it ends. And so to get to that ending, what do you, you, you can't wipe out all the humans. You've got to have humans. Right? You've got to have humans. So God's like, the solution isn't going to be, I just every time humans sin and screw up, I'm just going to kill them dead. No, he's got to have another plan. And so what's the plan? Well, God makes this covenant promise with Noah. And this is probably the easiest way to try to sum up the, the three quarters of the Bible that we call the Old Testament is, is to look at this uh, journey of covenants that God makes with, with certain individuals. Now, covenant, that's a weird word. I don't use it very often today. Um, it basically is like a contract. It's like a super serious contract that you make. And in the ancient days, this kind of a contract, like you, we find records like people were making it in Babylon and Egypt and other places. Um, but only usually, with rare, rare exception, these were always agreements between kings. So like the king of this nation would come and make an agreement with the king of this nation, and they'd, they'd call it a covenant, and it would have you know, stipulations like he's going to do this, and he's going to do this, and we're going to show love and affection for each other by not doing these things, and then we sign and seal the deal, and like we're good, and we move on. But here you have God, who is the divine king, right? He's the king of all creation, and, and he's making covenants with just regular individual humans who don't, at least not yet, have any kind of kingdom or nation to their name. Like, what in the world is going on here? God is still treating humanity like each one of us individually are kings in his creation. It's crazy. So we go on down, you know, Noah's kids multiply, and they just go totally bad, all of them, pretty much except for one guy God picks out. Um, he's, he's older, he's journeying with his family. His name's Abraham, or Abram when we meet him, but he gets changed to Abraham. And, and God comes to this guy, and just like, hey, you, 
You're, you're older, you're way past having kids, your wife is older, so I'm going to do a miracle in your life. I'm going to give you guys a miracle child, and you're going to have so many descendants you won't even be able to count them. And through your family, your miracle family that wouldn't exist without my intervention, I'm actually going to bless all the nations of the earth. You mean all those nations that are currently in rebellion to you, God? Yeah, those nations that are totally my enemies... I'm going to bless them and, and shower them with love and kindness through your family, Abraham. And so he makes this promise, and then they go along a little ways, and, and God shows up again, and uh, this is in Genesis 15, and God's like, hey, Abraham, it's been a while. How are you doing? Like, once again, I'm making this promise, I'm going to give you all these kids. Like, come outside your tent, look at the stars, which this is like a funny part in the Bible because the guy's 90 years old. And he's like, yeah, count the stars if you can. And, you know, I wear glasses, so I take my glasses off, and I, I can't, I just, like, it's a blurry mess. I can't count any stars. And I, I don't think Abraham could see them very well either. Um, but he was like, okay, yeah, I believe you. I believe you. I don't know how it's going to happen. It seems impossible, but I believe you. And God's like, yes, good job. You got it right. You just listened to my voice, and you trusted me. You did awesome. A, A plus, gold star. And then God says, and on top of that, I'm also going to give you, see this land that you've been wandering around? I'm going to give you this whole land. And Abraham's like, really? I don't know about that. <laughs> Miracle children, I can believe that. <laughs> but you're going to give me this real estate? I don't think so. What's the proof? Like, <laughs> and so they make a covenant, right? Which is just crazy because, you know, with, with, with Adam in the garden, there was no covenant with God because you make covenants, you make contracts with people that you don't trust, to fulfill their end of the bargain. That's the whole point of a contract. You know, that's what we do today. When you sign a contract, it's so that you have some legal protection if the other party doesn't do what they promised. And so God's like, all right, let's make a covenant, Abraham, since you don't trust me. Went from, you know, A, a plus to F minus in like one verse. And so they make a contract. And God's like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you these numerous descendants. And Abraham's like, okay, great. They move on, and then these, these descendants all end up in Egypt, and they're all slaves. And it's like, what in the world just happened? The whole story's derailed. And then God has to come in through Moses and rescue them, and he rescues them out of slavery, brings them into the wilderness, and in the wilderness, it, it seems like a weird, bizarre story. They go to a mountain, and it's on fire, and God's talking out of it, and the people are freaked out, and, and he's giving them... What we see is like, oh, all these laws. But no, what's happening, how you're supposed to read that story, is this is a wedding ceremony. And God is making a marriage contract with this people group. And you read in Exodus 18, the language is so affectionate and intimate. God's like, because I've already redeemed you out of slavery, I saved you from death. Now, I didn't ask anything of you to do that for you. I did that all on my own. But now that I've done that, I want to bring you to myself. I want you to be my special people, my treasured possessions. And if, if you'll hear my voice and obey it, then you're going to be a kingdom of priests. You'll be a, a, have a royal priesthood. And like we're going to kickstart this thing. And all, it's not just for you. All the nations of the world are going to get blessed through you. And, and the people, you read about this in Exodus 18, people are like, great idea, God. This is awesome. I do to this 
husband, like, yes, we will fulfill all of our wedding vows to you, and, and we definitely want to get the things that you promised to us. And then, you know, a few chapters later, you know, you know God gives them part of their marriage vows. It's like, I'm going to be your only God, right? And you're not going to make images of me because I already did that and all of that. And so then while God's talking with Moses, what do they do? They, they build a golden calf and they start worshiping and it's just like they can't even get one day into this thing and they already start breaking their wedding vows. And it's so frustrating when you're reading the story the first time because you're just like, ah! Like what we really need, like this is what you're meant to think, what we really need in this story is a human who could actually hear the of God and obey it all the time. Because none of these people can seem to do it. Even the best of them screw it up. Even Moses ends up screwing it up. And so, you know, eventually these people, they get into their land that God promised them, and they set up a kingdom, and they cry out for a king, and technically God was already their king, but they don't want God as their king, they want a human king, so God gives them a human king, and the first one doesn't work out, so then they get King David. And, and David shows up, and, you know, you know, probably a few of you heard a few stories about David, right? Like, he did some great things. He also got it wrong a few times, really wrong. Right? But God loves this, loves this guy. And when he finally, you know, becomes king and, and gets control over the kingdom, David does. Like, David's like, oh, God, I want to build you a house. Because up until this point, God's personal presence with his people was being, was in a tent, this mobile tent. And David's like, I got a palace now. God's in a tent. I want to build God a house. What he really means is I want to build God a temple, right? I want to build God a temple. And, and God sends a prophet to, to David and is like, oh, David, that's so sweet of you. You want to build me a house. <laughs> like, the whole earth is mine. Like, no, no, this, this is what's going to happen, David. You're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to make your name great. You, people are going to be talking about you thousands of years from now in El Dorado. They're going to be talking about your name. They're not going to forget you. Um, but, but one day after you, one of your sons, a descendant of you, he's going to build me a house. And his reign is going to be forever and I'm going to be with him, and I'm going to be like a father to him, and he's going to be like a son to me. And you're like, oh, that sounds really good. That sounds like the kind of human we need. That sounds like the kind of king that is a human king, but he perfectly represents God. He always does justice and does what's right. Like, that's the kind of king we need. And then we get Solomon, and we're thinking, this is the guy. He's great. He starts off so well, and then it goes downhill and just totally screws it up, and by the time Solomon's done, like the whole kingdom's been torn in half, like it's just terrible. And, and as we see, like all of these different kings that come in the story, and we're waiting, and we're watching and following this lineage of David, looking for the guy who's going to be the, if we could just get one human who could get it right, like there might be some hope for us. We might have somebody who can fulfill these contracts with God so that we can get back to where we were in the beginning with a good, good world, purged of evil, humans working together in unity, in love, serving God, walking with God, always hearing his voice. Like, it would just be amazing. But where is this human going to be? And, and it just goes, and there's some kings that do okay, and then bad, and okay, and it just kind of gets worse and worse and worse. And eventually, like, it seems like, like we're fed up with the story, and God's fed up, and then the whole people just get dragged off into exile. And then there's like a third of the Bible is just about, now Israel is in exile, they're all scattered in these other nations, and they're just writing all these stories and reflecting back 
to when they were in the land and when they were with God and how did we get here and what went so wrong? And many of the prophets will correctly say that, you know what it is? It's not that humans don't try hard enough. It's not that we just don't want it bad enough. It's that there's something fundamentally broken inside of us. There's something desperately wrong with the human heart. And oh, if only there was some way that God could get inside a person and their inner being and and fix that broken heart and set it right so that we could actually truly hear the voice of God and have a chance for once in our lives to really obey it and to walk in it. If we could get that, then we'd be on our way to a new kind of humanity that's now moving in the direction back to the garden, back to the presence of God, back to a good world. That's what we need. And that's how the the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, ends. Like with all of these threads hanging out there, and you're just like, ah, what's going to be the solution? How is this story ever going to resolve? Who can bring peace between a person and his own heart? Who can bring peace between me and my enemy? And my enemies are everywhere. Well, then you go and you look at the very first page of the New Testament. Book of Matthew. How many of you, when you ever, how many of you read the book of Matthew before? At least try to, yeah. And you got, and, and like, it's the, like, horrible way to start a story, right? Here's the genealogy. Right? Right? Like, oh, I'm already done. Like, this is why I didn't want to read the Bible in the first place, because I thought it was full of things like this, right? But no, but if you know the story that you're in, if you know the promises that have previously been made up until this point, and the, the promises to specific lineage, a descendant, a family. Well, then it makes perfect sense. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Wait, you mean that David that God made the promise to that there was going to be a son? Yeah, wait a second. Now I'm interested. Is this going to be the guy? Or is he going to screw it up too, just like everyone else? And you start reading the story of the, new, of the Gospels in the New Testament, and you're like... Wow! Makes perfect sense. The only way we're going to get a human to come and actually do the things that God has called us to do is if God comes himself as a human and does it. And he comes not just as any human, but he comes as a human who's in the direct lineage, the direct descent of Abraham. Right? Of David. All these people that, of Israel. He is the pure and perfect Israelite who is not just obeying the commandments of God, he's literally like fulfilling them and showing what the real ideals and principles are behind all of those commandments. He is like a walking Bible. And people are fascinated by him. They're like, what in the world? How is he going to turn this world upside down? And he's not just dealing with human sin, but he's also dealing with the supernatural evil that's always been there behind the scenes, pulling the strings and pushing and enticing and tempting. And he just sends those things packing like they're nothing, like he's the king of the world. Because he is. And then he, he ends his life on earth by putting himself into the hands of, of the worst of humanity and says, do your worst to me, I can take it. And in laying down my life in perfect obedience and submission to my Father, I'm going to set all of you free, even the ones that are killing me. I am shedding my blood so that you can be forgiven. 
And then the whole rest of the New Testament are the, the, the early apostles and church fathers just trying to unpack that explosive conclusion to this story and what that means for us today. And so as we're reading books like Colossians, it's really like keep all of this stuff in your mind. This is what Paul is thinking about when he's writing about Jesus being the, the preeminent one, the one that, that this whole story doesn't make any sense at all if you take him out. Without Jesus, the whole story falls apart. We will never get to our new Eden, our new garden where we walk with God under the tree of life, under his light, under his, his care, in total unity and intimacy and community with him. Like, we don't get there without Jesus. He is the whole reason for the story, and the whole story is pointing to him and making us hungry for him if we're reading the story right. And, and, and what Paul unpacks in this letter in, in Colossians is that through Jesus, Jesus then becomes a covenant in himself. By entering into Jesus, we're entering into a new contract where we live the life that Christ has given us, and we slowly but surely become the new kind of humanity that the prophets in, in the Old Testament were dreaming about. The kind of humanity that for the first time has a chance to do the right thing, to hear the voice of God and obey it. So in the cross, we have the fulfillment of all of those covenants. But in the resurrection, we have the promise now of we have a new life that we have the opportunity and an invitation this morning to walk in. Let's pray. Abba, Father, wow. What an incredible story. I could stand here and talk about it all day and all night. But Lord, I just ask that you, that as I go silent, Lord, that you would speak. Speak to the hearts of every person here, Lord. Show them personally how they are invited into this magnificent, epic story, the most epic story that has ever been told. And it's all true. It's all real. And there's a part, a place for each one of us to play in your story. But you're not going to force any of us to do that. No, Jesus, you're kinder than that. You've opened the door. You are the door. You are the gate. And you've just said, come. Whoever wants to can come and enter into me and receive my life to walk with me, to hear my voice. Lord, that's what we want. We're surrounded by so many voices in this world, God, but we are desperate, so desperate to hear your voice, to know your will. Help us to do that this morning. Empower us by your Holy Spirit to walk as a new kind of human, to live a different kind of life that stands out, not because of how amazing we are, but how awesome and glorious you are and the transforming work that you want to do in each one of us, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please stand with us as we sing one last song. If you've been walking the same old road for miles.